All right, good morning. It's wonderful to be together. We're going to be back in Acts 13 as the Word of God is going forth from Antioch through the work of the Holy Spirit in keeping with the commission of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather in your name and look into these things which are so wonderful. Thank you for what you've done and what you're doing and help us to stay focused on the truth and the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we were we finished when we were on Acts 13, 3 and 4 as they fast and when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. Now, we have on your handout, I believe, a map that we did the best we could. Christy kind of blew it up so she could print it. Let me see here. I don't have a very long cord. I can read it pretty good from here. Right there is where this all starts. That's Antioch, which is, it's all blurry. No, it's just this. Oh, it's okay. Sorry. (laughs) This is Antioch, where this all started. As I said earlier, Antioch was, was a commerce and cultural center of the Roman Empire, Rome being the number one such place, Alexandria number two, Antioch number three. So this was a significant um, place, and it became sort of a sending place for gospel preachers and an important Thing that the Lord used to uh, um, have the Gentile mission go forward. This is Seleucia right there. That's what that says. And then there's this journey over here, and then we end up up here, I think. Whoa. I was afraid that happened. I believe that's Pisidian Antioch right there. This is Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch. And one of the things we're going to notice, well, I'll just make an obvious point that some people don't often think about the significance of. These are real places. This isn't fiction. This is real history, real places, accurate description of the situation in such places. I'll point one of those out. And Luke obviously wasn't some guy 300 years later sitting in a cave writing fiction. He was a real believer, a physician, who was at times a traveling companion of Paul and saw these things happen. So biblical Christianity is not grounded in mythology. It's grounded in cold sober, objective history. 
And God did not do these things in a corner, as it says, because this is for everyone to know that this is true and that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that his ministry to bring salvation to all people, to the Jew first and also to Gentiles, did not end when he ascended into heaven, but it was actually beginning, uh, in a sense, through the church when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And so the theme of Luke-Acts is that what Jesus did in Luke is carried on by the apostles in Acts. And the Great Commission, as recounted in Luke 24, actually happens. So here we have more of a close-up of the Pisidian Antioch up there. So there's two Antiochs. I didn't want anybody to be confused. The one from which they went and then the one in Pisidia. And one of the things we're going to see thematically in Luke Acts, or especially Acts, excuse me, but although it happened in Luke too, is that synagogues are significant. It's true that Paul went, went to Gentiles and ended up in Rome at the end of, as a prisoner at the end of Acts. But the first place they would start was in a Jewish synagogue on Shabbat. Why? Because there were, these were the people that already had the scriptures and already had the promises of Messiah and understood the categories that Paul and the apostles were going to present. Messiah, salvation, inerrant scripture, forgiveness of sins, blood atonement, repentance. These were meaningful categories already to the Jews. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, Eric, could you grab my little bag of cough drops out of there? And uh, so that's where they began. And then there were mixed responses to that. As it takes a lot of cough drops to keep a preacher going. That's right. Exotic ones that I can only get from overseas. But they work. Now... <laughs> Here is the sending uh, from Antioch to Seleucia, and they sailed to Cyprus. So you can look at your maps. So there is an echo here. I've told you many times, Luke uses reviews and previews. There's echoes from what already happened and things now that will be later significant. Luke will introduce a character without saying much about that person who later becomes a key person. Like Saul, who's holding these cloaks when Stephen is stoned. He ends up being an apostle. So this is all fantastic literature, by the way, from the ancient world. Other people are talking about, uh, as Dana was pointing out on one Wednesday night, so few documents even exist for some of the literature that was around the Bible blows everything else out of the water as far as the quality and character of the 
in number of the ancient documents. So these things happened in real places. I believe they literally did happen and that we can rely on the scripture as telling us the truth. Now, as I said last week, what happened with Jesus in Luke 2, 3, and 4 is echoed in what's going to happen here in Acts. And Luke makes that very clear, and he does it on purpose. The reason that's important is that the readers know that the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and then his ascension was at the end, as I said earlier, but the beginning. That this same thing happens to the apostles. There's opposition. There's demonic opposition. There's persecution. But there are people who do respond in faith as well. So this happened with Jesus. Now, for example, in Luke 4, 17 and 18, in the synagogue, notice Jesus began his ministry after the 40 days in the wilderness in a synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And they handed him the book or the scroll and and he opened it and he he cites from Isaiah uh, to prove that scripture is being fulfilled. Luke 4, 17 and 18. In the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. The term release, by the way, aphasis is the word for where we get our word forgiveness. Release and forgiveness are the same word in the Greek. Now let's turn now to the commissioning of the apostles. Luke 24, 46 to 49. And he, that is the resurrected Christ, said to them, thus it is written, notice again, uh, an allusion to scripture, that the Christ, by the way, when he said before, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he anointed me. Not everybody knows this. Maybe you do because you're people who study the scripture a lot. Ha Christos means the anointed one. From crema meaning anointing. And the, so Jesus is the anointed one. The anointed one is the, the, the Christ. So Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown, claimed to be the Christ, the promised Messiah. Messiah means, again, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one from the Old Testament. That the Christ, Luke 24, 46, would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins, forgiveness is release, so that's the same idea found in Luke 4, would be proclaimed in his name. Let me stop there. Jesus proclaimed release to captives. The apostles are to proclaim release 
and do so in his name, meaning by his authority. He authorized the apostles to preach the gospel to all the nations. Now, this was something that was predicted to nations in the Old Testament, but mostly, if not completely, the Jewish scribes and scholars didn't see that or didn't register. In their minds, they weren't thinking of goyim being part of Messianic salvation. Eric, if you want to speak to that, you probably know more about it than I do, knowing Hebrew, so I only know Greek. Go ahead and take the mic if you want to say anything. Did they expect that Messianic salvation was going to be for all the Gentiles? No, they didn't. But they should have. They should have known. <laughs> it's sorry. in the Bible, but they... That's right. They, they should have known. Um, you know, you look at... But you'd mentioned the Genesis twelve three that in Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. Yes, it's, it's in the Bible. They just... It didn't register. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that didn't register was the fact that Messiah comes first to suffer, to take away sin. They saw it as glory all the time. So a suffering Messiah wasn't even in their Rolodex, you know. Right. So yeah. they're thinking... Messiah will conquer the nations. Right, yeah. And there were conflicting verses in the Old Testament. Is that correct? Amen, exactly right. He's looking at Isaiah, the very same book. You have one part of it, like Isaiah 26, known as the little apocalypse, where you have Messiah. He's going to take victory over the nations. Um, You look at Psalm 2. He's going to reign over the nations. But what's interesting is he also brings salvation to the nations. And so they couldn't reconcile. They couldn't put it together. Right. Um, one thing that was interesting, too, back in your uh, Luke chapter 4, there's a possibility. I looked at this IVP years ago, this Bible background commentary. And one possibility is that in those synagogues in the day, the scroll, there would have been a reading on a That was the schedule. reading that happened to come up. I was going to say that. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is it shows God's providence. Providentially, yeah. Jesus comes in on the very day that Isaiah 61 is to be read. So he wasn't searching through finding this passage. That was the passage of the reading for that day. That was their reading from the yeah. prophets. Yeah. Amen. So, so they're going to imagine going to synagogue, going to synagogue, going to synagogue. And all of a sudden, the guy walks in. And the reading is about the guy who showed up. <laughs> oh, you're the Messiah? Now, they didn't respond very well eventually, did they? They want to throw him off a cliff. But that's what actually happened. Okay, so the nations, what happens? And this is what is the drama of Acts. They were not able to reconcile the conquering king, and the suffering servant. They were both in the scriptures. So they just went with the conquering king part because it's certainly more appealing. We're going to defeat all the goyim and, and uh, we're going to be the, the head. And, but yet there were passages that the seed of Abraham would be something that brought blessing to the nations. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Now, it turns out that the suffering servant comes first and dies for sins and sends his followers to the nations to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins, release. 
and he's going to come later and conquer. That's the second coming. So it's not that there's a contradiction, but they happen sequentially with the church age in between. Plus Daniel 70 week after the rapture. So it's both things are true, but we need to understand that so we don't get deceived. There are false theologies that teach things like dominion theology that say the church is to conquer the nations. You know, uh, right now, before Christ can come back, and we're going to defeat all the nations by creating a theocracy and then offer the nations to Jesus. Okay, you can come now. We did it for you. Now, I wrote about that. There's a, there's a movement called Christian Reconstruction that does that. Um, Barb, if you want to bring the mic to Rich over here. And uh, so I wrote an article about that. It's in our scholarly section. Yes. Yeah, my sister was watching TV during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and she saw a guy on TV that held up a sign that says, when Jesus Christ returns, let's kill him again. And, and my thinking is this. Yikes. When Jesus Christ returns again, he's not coming to die again. He's coming to kill. Yeah, they're going to be in trouble. But they'll love the Antichrist. Yeah. All right. So what Eric and I have been saying, and I think we've seen it play out as we study and study and study together over the couple decades here, and uh, everything is literal unless there's some reason not to take it that way. And when Jesus came, dozens and dozens of Old Testament prophecies were not only fulfilled, they were fulfilled in more literal detail than anybody would have expected, down to almost minutia. And there were a couple things that weren't literal, very few. The only one I can think of off the top of my head was Elijah was actually John the Baptist, not actual Elijah. But Elijah does show up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but then he disappears and everything pointed to Christ. So Elijah came as the prophet, John the Baptist, the last prophet of the old era, and then appears with Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration, but now is Christ and the apostles. But, uh, but there were so many literal fulfillments. Now some people are trying to tell us, now all the rules have changed and everything's figured out, but nothing's literal. And there's no reason in the Bible to believe that that all future prophecy is non-literal. And that the only thing that will happen is the second coming in the eternal order. That's called amillennialism. Postmillennialism says we're going to establish the kingdom without Jesus. We reject amillennialism. We reject postmillennialism. We believe literal Bible prophecy will happen as stated in the Bible and the good ground for that is that that's how the first advent happened. Literally. Literally. So, Jesus mentioned it. Go ahead. You know, one passage that really illustrates that is um, in Exodus 26, there's a prophecy of the destruction of Tyre. And when you read that prophecy, there's very specific things that are listed, like the rocks will be scraped bare on Tyre. Well, you think, well, that's kind of figurative language. God is so angry that he's going to scrape their their ground bare, but it's just figurative 
Well, literally 254 years after that prophecy, Alexander the Great is trying to get out to the island portion of Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the mainland portion, but to conquer the island portion of Tyre in the Mediterranean, nobody could do that. Well, Alexander the Great figured out, a, figured out a way to do it. He scraped the rocks of mainland Tyre into the ocean, and he built a causeway out to sack Tyre. So literally, Ezekiel 26 is fulfilled in very specific detail. Their rocks really were scraped, and their debris was thrown into the ocean, yeah. just as Ezekiel 26 claimed. There, there are so many cases of that, including during the intertestamental period. Yeah, exactly. Daniel's prophecy. When I debated a millennialist at a public debate, I brought a lot of that up, and he just sort of shrugged and went to his next point. He didn't say anything. When did the rules change? He just shrugged. Nice guy, but he he just wanted to follow his Calvinist tradition. Is is what it boiled down to. He was a creedal Calvinist, and they say there. The millennium's not going to happen, so I guess that's what we got to believe. But here's, here's something I wanted to say at some point, whether in a sermon or in a Sunday school. I'll say it now so I don't forget. I was meditating on this the other day when I was studying. Church history has to be interpreted in light of Scripture. Scripture doesn't have to be interpreted in light of church history. No. The creedalists are going to disagree with me. The creeds are all, like Rome says, all of their traditions and creeds and councils are just as much valid as anything that happened in the Bible. They kind of ignore the Bible. But Protestants do the same thing. Creedal Protestantism does the same thing. So here's my statement about it. Creeds must be interpreted in light of Scripture. Here's why I say that. Because some creeds do have the truth. But the reason they're true is because they do agree with Scripture, if indeed they do. Scripture alone is binding and authoritative. So if there's a creed that Roman Catholicism, for example, affirms that states that the Trinity is true, then that creed is true in as much as the Trinity is a biblical idea. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit share the attributes of deity, three persons, one deity, one God. Okay, so we're not saying everything in church history is false. But what we are saying is that how we know what's true and false in church history can only be determined by what Scripture says. Because it was given by real apostles. Eric was talking about that. But some people say we can only believe what the Bible says if our creeds tell us that's what it is. So if the creed says there's no millennium, then we're wrong to believe the millennium in the Bible. So when I debated a guy, he said, well, there's only one verse that talks about a thousand years. But look at all the verses about Jesus literally coming and reigning. And the length of the time is the only thing you want to talk about. So how many verses does it take to be true? Okay, go ahead, uh, Brian. We're going to make sure you get an exercise bar. Her husband is looking for Bambi out in the woods. When Eric referred to uh, Ezekiel and uh, Tyre, uh, a more uh, a modern example would be the nation of Israel. 
Yeah, it's, well, you know, here's another one I just thought of that happened already after the book of Acts, but now much later. Did not Jesus prophesy the destruction of the temple? It happened in 70 AD under the Romans. So, again, Jesus is, speaks inherently and truly for God. See, there's no reason to run from the literal Bible. Rationalists in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century wanted to take Christianity away from literal history for fear it'd be proven wrong by rationalism. There are no miracles and so on. But they were premature because they had given up on the literal when, in fact, the 20th century was proving the Bible eventually over and over and over again. Somebody said every time they dig in the Middle East, another liberal theory goes out the window. Oh, it really happened. Oh, it's really here. Oh, it did. Oh, there is such a place. Oh, there is a Caesarea. Uh, remember going to that Colosseum? Oh, yes, it wasn't there. Well, yeah, it was there. Now they found it. See, over and over again, it's true. We don't need to run away from what's true, dear saints, because it proves itself over and over, yes. Um, a comment, probably a question on on creeds. I, I agree with what you're saying about creeds, but I think there is some value in creeds and that the creeds were established in an, uh, in an attempt to define what is Orthodox Christianity, and a lot of time was spent on... on rejecting heresies and so mm-hmm. forth in the establishment of the creeds. So creeds, in a sense, provide uh, kind of guardrails. Rail, guard no, on that I'm going to disagree with you on. It's not a guardrail. Well, if you get nope. outside, too far outside the creeds, you, you are in in, in some cases, you have to go outside or you'll be in air forever and ever. Like infant baptism saves you. There, there, yes. It's a guardrail against regeneration. But, yeah, I, I know there are exceptions to that, but there are, there are many good things that the creeds describe. But that's why the creeds have to be interpreted in light of I agree Scripture. With that. I, I agree with that. I'd say we don't need them at all, uh, unless don't, we don't know the Bible. Nah, I don't know if I go along Creeds with that. are part of providence. <laughs> providence contains good and evil. Yeah. And in my reading of church history... I'll just say what Luther said, for that matter. Here's how Rome defended itself against the gospel. We have the creeds. We have the councils. We are many. We are ancient. Therefore, we are right. <laughs> and that was the end. They, they, they don't mind if millions of people go to hell as long as Rome gets to keep her creeds. And so I think it's serious. Now, you haven't heard my sermon yet next week, and maybe... It'll be wrong and feel free to disagree with it. But the, the, the balustrade in the temple was a guardrail. And the Jews believed that they had a fence or a guardrail. And the law created that to keep them from uh, defilement, sin, whatever it was they wanted to be kept from. But in, in Ephesians, Paul actually says, and I'll show you that from the Greek when I preach next week, that God destroyed the guardrail. He destroyed it. He tore it down. 
the wall of separation. If we have the guardrail effectively keeps the gospel from going anywhere. Okay, so in our hometown, and you can ask my mom about the culture of Sheldon, Iowa, the Dutch Reform had more guardrails than anybody did. And, I mean, they really did guard their their creeds and their councils and their traditions. But that didn't save anybody. Yeah. And they wouldn't... They, In fact, it just created the same level of hypocrisy that we saw with the Pharisees. You know what the term Pharisee means? Separated. Yeah. Separated. Now, Mom and I were just talking on the phone. Sorry, Mom, to mention you in Sunday school. <laughs> you don't mind? <laughs> yeah, it's her birthday. So, which we're thankful for. She wasn't supposed to have another one. But here she is. But they... But see, they, the guardrail kept them as we are Dutch, we are the real pure Dutch, because they actually guarded against other versions of Dutch reform. They fought with each other. The Christian reform were the most pious. And that offended my dad so much because he'd see all this uh, stealing and robbing and money grubbing and wickedness. But Sunday, we're pious, we're in church, we're the Reformed. And if somebody threatened their creed, it'd probably start a war. But their hearts were never changed. So let me ask you, do you think there was any value at all in the councils when they debated heresies? Here, here's the value, okay? I, I would say it's, this, it's, it's true. It was valuable. Eric, in the next two weeks, I think I'll be talking about the human will in regards. Are you going to do that? Okay, so I'm not talking out of school. I think it was very valuable that when Pelagius came around, he was refuted. Okay? It is still valuable. And I think that I love church history. I took so many church history courses, they almost could have been a minor. I mean, I got a degree, you know, a a master's degree in theology, but I took every church history course class I could because I was very interested because most of the heresies I was fighting showed up in church history. Right. It's valuable. And it's valuable that us today are here in Sunday school making an audio defending that Christ came to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now that I preach that is valuable because it is biblical. And nowadays Audios and videos have just as much shelf life as a book. So I, I preach in light of that, that somebody may, and it should be judged. But so creeds can be judged, so can sermons. I don't think that whoever got together and decided there's going to be no millennium, 300 scholars decide there's no millennium. I don't care how many they are, and I don't care how smart they are. They're still wrong. So why can't I judge the creed? I guess you, you can, but it was a good starting point for, <laughs> okay. for some of this. I mean, uh, it, it was refined later, but, but, but they had to start someplace. They with, start with Scripture. And that's how they came up with a lot of these statements. Exactly. Because, because their heretics okay. were going way outside of Scripture and right. trying it. I totally agree. But here's what happens. This is why I brought up the Dutch Reformed Calvinists in my hometown. 
who became known just for a lot of hypocrisy because the same reason the Pharisees did. They were separated, and they prided themselves on being separate, but in real life, they were still sinners like the rest of us. Okay, here's the deal. The creeds become the final say, not Scripture. And if you go to refute somebody's creed from Scripture, you're lucky if they don't kill you. Well, I agree with you 100%. They get so angry. Well, so then the creed creates self-righteousness, pietism, hypocrisy, laziness, and an unwillingness to learn anything. Yeah, so if you look at a creed and say... This is the same as scripture. You're you're absolutely But they do. Incorrect. I, I carried a thing around, wrong. I maybe still have it. That's wrong. I love you, Norm. Let me okay. tell you this. Okay. I have a thing in my briefcase <laughs> where the Missouri Synod Lutheran denomination actually claims that all of their creeds and and, and councils, whatever their particular statement was is all biblical, therefore binding. It's, all, it's, it's binding. Now, we say scripture is binding. They say our creed is. So you go into a Missouri St. Lutheran church, and if you want to disagree with them, you're branded a heretic before they ever even listen to one word you have to say because their creed is binding. They say it is on their website. So our, the, the, somebody wanted us to do a Baptist uh, thing, creed. I said, I'm not, I don't have any authority, but I said, no, no, no. Absolutely not, because then whatever's wrong with it, we're stuck with it, we can't correct it. So, uh, on Pelagius, even Rome agrees with us that Pelagius was a heretic. And they still do. Even in Trent, their first um, thing about the issue of free will where they, re- where they rebuke Luther. But the first thing they do is rebuke Pelagius. Okay? So I think we want to know. We want to know what they said. We want to know what they were debating. We want to know when it happened. We want to know why they hold to it. We want to know why the issue came up. Who were the principal parties? What were they saying? What were their arguments? But in the end, we interpret the creed in light of Scripture. Would you agree? I think you do. Good. Now, the creedalists in, interpret scripture in light of the creed. Because here's what they say. We are ancient, we are many, therefore we're right. A, for, a pastor that I worked with for many years had been ordained as a Lutheran pastor before we met. He, we were both in the 70s in the charismatic renewal. And he came to Christ. And he told me a story about they had their ordination service where all of the seminary graduates from the Lutheran seminary had to swear that they believed the essential truths of the creeds or they couldn't be ordained. And they got up there and they all swore that they believed it, which included the deity of Christ, the resurrection, things that we would agree is true. Afterwards, this is what the fellow that was our senior pastor told me one time, they got together afterwards to take their robes off and joke around and talk about what they're going to do now that they graduated. When they got done swearing to the creeds, almost every one of them said, that was a bunch of garbage. We don't believe any of it. 
So here is a whole group of Lutheran pastors who just lied that they believed creeds to go out all over America and pastor churches demanding that the Lutherans bow their knee to the creed, and they don't even believe it. They don't believe one word of it. Now, how is that anything but hypocrisy? You've been waiting the longest, Eric. You know, I used to not even read commentary. I used to not read any books about Scripture because I just thought, well, what's the point of using anything except for the Word of God? But it's really in Scripture that that it says, um, you know, he's gifted... You know, you're going to be blind in certain areas. And, and, and I realize that when I'm coming to church, I'm, I'm literally listening to a commentary, you know. And it's like, I look at it this way. It's like we have to discern what's right. And, and even Rick Warren will say a, a couple right words. It's just that the lies that he twists in there are so painful that I, I don't want to listen to his teaching. Right. And that's just Okay. Well, let me comment on that. That's a good point. Here's what Luther, the best thing... I got from Luther. I love Luther, frankly, because he stood up against the whole world. I'm not trying to shame Luther based on what some of his followers did. And I have areas of disagreement with Luther. But what I loved about him was the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And he said, you dear believers have a right to tell the Pope if he's wrong that he's wrong. If you can prove it from Scripture. So you're right, Eric. We have to be able to search the Scriptures to see if these things are true. In Acts, when they did that, they were called noble-minded. Okay? In other words, if somebody's preaching the truth, they're not going to be offended because somebody corrected them. In fact, I prefer to be corrected so that I don't keep doing the same dumb thing. Uh, Because sometimes people have better readings. Uh, Who is next over here? Adam, then we'll go to Levon. Yeah, when, when it comes to uh, creeds or councils, uh, at best they have a derivative authority uh, to the extent that they proclaim the truth uh, in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should rejoice with that uh, when it, whenever the truth is proclaimed. But Scripture is the, the, the final, the ultimate, uh, the, the only God-breathed authority uh, that we uh, possess. And I've noticed uh, a trend, a lot of times it's with young people, but it can happen at uh, any age, uh, colleges, seminaries, where people discover uh, the solas of, of the Reformation, Amen. which are the, the solas of Scripture. Uh, th- they'll discover the doctrines of grace, that, that salvation is by grace alone. It's a gracious work of God that uh, he raises dead sinners to life uh, and sets the slaves free. Uh, and they'll, they'll find that, but then they will oftentimes jump just wholesale uh, into the Westminster Confession or, or just embrace. And that's a very detailed statement, uh, and you better know Scripture very well before you uh, embrace something like that uh, in its entirety. It's claiming you know, to every, be comprehensive. Every line, yeah. line by line. Now, most of the things it says are true and wonderful, um, like, like a commentary, but uh, it's very detailed, and it takes a lot of study of the Word of God. Uh, and there are things that it says in there that uh, I know Eric, Bob, and I, uh, many of us here, would, would disagree very strongly with uh, on Scripture. And just to give an illustration, I heard a discussion between, uh, there are a few guys, but one was Jason Lyle. He's an astrophysicist. Uh, he's a young Earth creationist. And uh, another guy, I forget his name at the moment, He's a professor from Westminster Theological Seminary. 
Uh, now, thankfully, most people, not all of them do what he did, but in their discussion, Jason Lyle was the one who kept going back to Scripture, 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 Scripture. Everything in their discussion, that was his reference point. That was his authority. The other guy kept going, Westminster Confession, Westminster Confession, Westminster uh -huh. Confession. And guess what? He didn't even believe his own confession because it says God created uh, all things in six days. <laughs> and he had to explain that away and say, well, it really doesn't quite mean that or, or it allows broader interpretations where, you know, the six days really aren't six days. And it's like, no, the, that's what they confessed. <laughs> and so, yeah. but where were they going, you know, for that? Yeah. Uh, one was going to scripture and the other was going to the Westminster Confession of the Faith. And a lot of the audience was just kind of like, look kind of dumbfounded because uh, this guy was almost from like a different planet. They're, they're expecting him to go to scripture. And I don't mean to insult him there. It's just an illustration. And yeah, not well, that's what happens. That's what happens. If you go to your creed first and then maybe scripture, there's a problem mm -hmm. because you're tacitly saying, well, nobody can really enter. Well, I debated a guy who did what, just embraced the entire Westminster Confession because he wanted to join something. And I said, well, how do you follow infant baptism and how do you enter a covenant without being converted? His answer was, greater minds than ours have already figured this out. I've heard that too. Yeah, and I said, well, well wait a second. Uh, so these guys are all dead, so how do they get this IQ test to see they're smarter than me? I don't know if I'm smarter than somebody. Well, this isn't an IQ test. We have the Bible. Let's read it. And Bob, why, why does the Reformation matter? It, it's, not, it's not about boasting how, quote-unquote, reformed you are, uh, looking to uh, you know, the 1500s and, and all, all of those events, yeah. but it's reformed by Scripture. Uh, that's yeah. why the Reformation matters. The five matters. solas. Because they're going back to the Just gospel. so you all know, okay, because Eric's going to deal with something that's coming from the other side, from the free will doctrine people. And so that's another issue. Here's what we defend. The five solas. Okay? Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. As taught by Scripture alone to the glory of God alone. Five. So somebody comes along and says, well, you believe the doctrine of election, you must be a Calvinist. I said, well, I don't think Calvin would want me. <laughs> but five solas. Well, see, even Arminians will start backing off because they don't want to fight against the five solas because they don't want to say, well, salvation is not by grace. So I wrote an article about that, defending the five solas, back in one of my CIC articles. That we're going to, because it's, Scripture alone is where it all comes from. And we say the Scripture does teach salvation is by grace, and we preach that constantly. And that Christ alone is the Savior, not, not Christ plus works of the saints and pious deeds and popes and councils and, and all this stuff. And whenever you have a man-centered religion, you're not giving all the glory to God. Well, I get some of the glory because I'm smarter than everybody else. Right. No, I don't. We, we don't know that. I don't know that the guys that made the creed are smarter than me or dumber than me. <laughs> How do we know that? That's silly. 
What we want to know is what does the Bible say, Levant? I'm just repeating what you just said, is that the apostles in Christ, they always referred to Scripture. It is written. And if it's not written in Scripture, don't believe it. And um, the Bereans were commended for um, even testing what the Apostle Paul said. Exactly. And we are to test the spirits. Yeah. I have to test every word you say, even. Yes, you do. I mean, every, you know. And I love being corrected because, frankly, I hate being wrong. Sadly, I'm that way too often. <laughs> but uh, my mom knows that. <laughs> I've been that way since I was a kid. But uh, when I'm wrong, I have to admit it. When I rejected Christianity, I was wrong. And I had to repent and believe the truth of Christ. Yes, Paul. Yeah, um, I did a lot of schooling with the Missouri Synod, and sadly, I have to agree with you. But about uh, going back to the creeds, and one of the reasons why you go back to the creeds is it's kind of the junk food of spirituality. You <laughs> go back quickly, go back there without doing your homework and really going into the scripture. And so it's just kind of quick and easy. Make sure you stay on there. Huh? Uh, make sure when you use the mic. I think the battery was Oh, the battery went dead. Yeah. Batteries like me, old and tired. Okay, I hope I can get it all anyway. So uh, the reason why I would think we go back to, to the Apostles' Creed, and Isaiah's Creed, uh, is because it's kind of the junk food of. Uh, I'm so quick to go back to it, and refer to it, and not do your homework. Yeah. And not read yeah. Now, see, that's what I noticed when I was in seminary. I'm not saying there aren't some great things in the creeds, but I'm saying. We don't have a good excuse to be lazy. And here's why I say that. Now, I think the battery is dying. Yeah, it's red. All right. That's that's too bad. I need to do the new battery. Sorry about that. Um, Let me say this, and I'm going to at least get through one slide. That's the bare minimum. Um, Listen. When, When I got to seminary, I was so thrilled because the library, this was 1992. You didn't go on the internet to find things in 1992. You had to go to an actual library because the the internet was faster, but that was not an option. And this massive library, and I had teachers who required of us critical thinking. Critical thinking. Let me give you an example. If I'm going to write a paper that makes a claim Eric will talk about this probably next week I'm going to write a paper that makes a claim I am expected to have found the best scholars in the library who disagree with me okay go to the theological journals go to the documents go to the commentaries and don't just do special pleading I'm right because I'm me. That's special pleading. Okay, I believe in, for example, I wrote a paper claiming that Charles Finney was a Pelagian heretic. It's still on our website. And I submitted it to Dr. Travis, my church history teacher. But in order to make the claim, I was required to go to primary source documents. 
which in this case would be Finney's own writings, okay, and then debate that came up around Finney at the time. And then, of course, I'm going to go back and prove that Finney's claims were unbiblical. Finney's axiom is God will never require anything that we do not already have the ability to do. And that it was, by the way, Pelagian's, Plagius's claim. So I did the work. I went to the library. I saw who debated it. I cited Finney and, and, and submitted the paper. And, and now it's published on our website. But that's how you do theology. But if you're going to say, well, I can't believe that because the Westminster Confession won't let me and I'm a Presbyterian. I agree with you, Paul. Isn't that a little bit lazy? I know it won't get you through a seminary because that's not doing primary source research. And that is, I call it parochialism. We're right because we are we. I think that's grammatically correct. I always say we are us, which isn't correct, but it sounds better. We're, we have to be right. We're us. No. We could be us and be wrong. I keep having bad grammar, don't I? <laughs> All right, I think it's hopeless on the grammar thing. Let me go on here. The Christ, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. Is it right to preach in the gospel repentance for forgiveness of sins? I wrote an article saying, yes, it is. And I got accused of teaching salvation by works. I kid you not, I get these nasty emails. One thing about the internet, you can get more negative in a hurry. <laughs> You're teaching salvation by works. Well, then Jesus was. He, he said for repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. They did that. You are witnesses of these things, meaning these are eyewitnesses of Christ and his teachings who were personally appointed by him. That's what makes them apostles. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father, that's the Holy Spirit, upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So when the Holy Spirit came upon them and Peter becomes the spokesperson in, the, in that great sermon, what happened? He preached Christ, turning to Christ in forgiveness. And you know, uh, I did a study on that once, and I found that every time the Bible tells us in the New Testament how to know what is or isn't from the Holy Spirit, it boils down to whether Christ is confessed. He, the Comforter, when he comes, he will testify of me. That's what Jesus said. How do you know it's the spirit? We're going to see that as we go into Acts. There's lots of spirits, magicians. Simon Bar-Jesus we're going to see here. We already had the guy in Acts. Uh, who is the sorcerer? Come on, Bob. Simon. Simon. Another Simon. Well, there's a bunch of Simons. Uh, anyhow, Simon... The sorcerer was false. There's always opposition and other spirits in the occult, and there's this battle. 
And we need to know what is and isn't the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit is what leads the confession of Christ. And then an apostle emailed me and said, oh, you're wrong. You are quenching the spirit. Now, because I sent that, we did a video on that. Okay, now tell me this. How is preaching Christ quenching the spirit when Jesus said that when the spirit comes, he will testify about me? I believe that preaching Christ is being used by the spirit. Okay. That's the one thing Satan won't do is preach Christ in forgiveness. Signs and wonders can be counterfeited, but preaching of Christ is the real thing. And so you, you will not quench the spirit by preaching Christ. I've got a few minutes here. Let me, I told you about Bob, Bob or Robert Tannehill's two-volume commentary on Luke X called The Narrative of Unity of Luke X. It's one of the better scholarly sources I have to understand Luke and what he was writing. Now, I want to warn you, he calls Luke the narrator. Uh, that's, uh, frankly, let me tell you why that's happening, and it's really, in some ways, helpful. In the past, uh, if somebody would say, Luke said this, then a whole segment wouldn't, would t- dial out, would not listen. Because you're, you're naive, you think Luke actually wrote Luke, whether or not you do. And the other whole segment would say, well, we can't listen to anybody who doesn't say Luke. He just says the narrator, if you believe Luke's a narrator, which I do, it's going to help you. If you don't, you're still going to learn Luke X, and who knows, maybe you'll repent and believe the gospel. I don't get offended if somebody says the narrator, because Luke is the narrator. So just be warned about that. That's not proof that Tannehill didn't believe there was a real Luke. Whether he did or not, I don't know if he's still on the scene of history to ask him. Tannehill, quote, Paul makes a major statement near the beginning of this new mission. His speech resembles that of Jesus in setting. Parenthetically, a synagogue says Tannehill's service with reading of scripture. End of parentheses. And resembles Peter's in points of contact. The three speeches that is Jesus, Peter's, and now Paul, uh, either contain or lead to a scripture quotation that interprets the mission that, it be, that, that is beginning, Luke 4, 18, so on Acts 2, 17 through 21, and then here Acts 13, 47, end of parentheses. They lead immediately, citing some more scripture, or in due course, citing more scripture, to an outbreak of opposition. The inclusion of Gentiles in God's salvation is mentioned and may be part of the pro- provocation. Then he quotes scripture. Furthermore, a scene in which a lame man is healed follows shortly after the scene in which the mission is announced. Tannehill's the best reader I've ever run into. And so I look it all up to see if he's right. So why would Luke go to all the trouble to have this scene synagogue in Nazareth, Pentecost speech, Pisidian Antioch, 
Old Testament, the nations, repentance, forgiveness, healing of a lame man, proclamation, the coming of the Spirit. Why did Luke go to all that trouble? I'm, I'm thankful that Tannehill was able to read and see that. To show that what's happening is what God intended and that the mission didn't fail. Jesus' mission is carrying on right now because he intended it to. And the Jews might say, well, you claim Jesus the Messiah. Where is he? Well, he sent it into heaven. He's coming again. He was raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. Nobody said, no, the tomb's not empty. Here's the body. They couldn't do that. So that's the reading. Now, let me just read some of that. Acts 13, 44 through 48. Here's a little preview for us. This shows that what Jesus did, what Peter did, and what Paul and Barnabas are doing are really the same thing. We can learn from this. Okay, Acts 13, starting with 44. Turn to that if you have your Bibles. Acts 13, 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Let me stop there. What happened in Nazareth when Jesus announced the fulfillment of Isaiah 53? They became angry, didn't they? What did they do? They went to throw him off a cliff. Opposition always follows. Verse 46, Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. By the way, boldness is good when you're preaching the gospel. And said, quote, it was necessary day. That's a key word day in the Greek. uh, Means divine necessity. She is throughout Luke Acts. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Then it says, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Okay, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Here's what happened. He was crucified, raised on the third day. Now we don't want to hear that. We're going to start a riot. Okay, we'll go to the Gentiles. That's the pattern. That's the pattern. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, Quote, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Unquote. So they quote scripture to validate their mission. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. There it is. You know what, since I've understood how God converts people, it really helped give me boldness to preach the gospel consistently because there's always going to be some people who believe, and we can't predict who they are. We can't evaluate somebody's past or their character or their ethnicity and predict who's going to be converted. Can we? Who would have thought this? Here is Saul of Tarsus holding the coast for people stoning Stephen, breathing out railing blasphemous threats against the disciples of the Lord, hostile to Christ, wanting to kill and murder Christians, 
Somebody would have looked that guy over and said, you know, I think he'd make a good Christian. <laughs> Paul, you and I wouldn't have thought that, would we? What? Why doesn't God strike him dead? What did God do instead? Converted him. Saved him. Dear ones, if you have a son or daughter, grandkids, friends, co-workers, people you know, lives are all messed up, always going the wrong direction, they seem hopeless, you don't know what God's going to do. You don't know who's going to believe. I don't believe in giving up on anybody still alive. Now, I've had an apostate pastor who said, don't bother, I'm much more happy now that I renounced Christ. Don't send me any more articles. I'm very happy being an atheist. That's probably an actual apostate. But that's so rare. It's happened like twice in my whole life that I ever ran into that. Most people, we don't know who God's going to convert. So we don't give up on people. Or we shouldn't. I'm not saying that I don't have a tendency to do that. But I want to remember what the Lord said here. So thank you for the discussion. And we're over time, so it's time to close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for converting people that we wouldn't have expected for giving us Luke X so we could see your ways and what the gospel's about and help us as we sort through these things we discussed about creeds and councils what's true and what isn't true how we know what's true what we need help us to always go back to those five solas so that we can judge things and we know what the gospel's about and we can know scripture and understand it and be learners of your ways and learn more perfectly your ways. We thank you, Lord, for for this and pray for Eric that you would bless him as he preaches to us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of your Sunday. We'll see you upstairs.